Book Six, Part One of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Six, Part One. All this Minerva heard and she approved their songs and their resentment. But her heart was brooding thus. It is an easy thing to praise another, I should do as they. No creature of the earth should ever slight the majesty that dwells in me, without just retribution. So her thought was turned upon the fortune of Arachne, proud, who would not ever yield to her the praise won by the art of deftly weaving wool, a girl who had not fame for place of birth, nor fame for birth, but only fame for skill. For it was well known that her father dwelt in Colophon, where at his humble trade he dyed in Phocian purples, fleecy wool. Her mother, also of the lower class, had died. Arachne in a mountain town by skill had grown so famous in the land of Lydia, that unnumbered curious nymphs eager to witness her dexterity, deserted the lush vineyards of Timolus, or even left the cool and flowing streams of bright Pactolus, to admire the cloth, or to observe her deftly spinning wool. So graceful was their motion, then, if she was twisting the coarse wool in little balls, or if she teased it with her finger-tips, or if she softened the fine fleece, drawn forth in misty films, or if she twirled the smooth round spindle with her energetic thumb, or if with needles she embroidered cloth, in all her motions one might well perceive how much Minerva had instructed her. But this she would ever deny, displeased to share her fame, and said, let her contend in art with me, and if her skill prevails, I then will forfeit all." Minerva heard, and came to her, disguised with long grey hair, and with a staff to steady her weak limbs. She seemed a feeble woman, very old, and quavered as she said, "'Old age is not the cause of every ill. Experience comes with lengthened years, and therefore you should not despise my words. It is no harm in you to long for praise of mortals, when your nimble hands are spinning the soft wool, but you should not deny Minerva's art, and you should pray that she may pardon you, for she will grant you pardon if you ask." Arachne, scowling with an evil face, looked at the goddess as she dropped her thread. She could hardly restrain her threatening hand, and trembling in her anger she replied to you, disguised Minerva. Silly fool, worn out and witless in your palsied age, a great age is your great misfortune. Let your daughter and your son's wife, if the gods have blessed you, let them profit by your words. Within myself my knowledge is contained sufficient. You need not believe that your advice does any good, for I am quite unchanged in my opinion. Get you gone, advise your goddess to come here herself, and not avoid the contest." Instantly the goddess said, Minerva comes to you, and with those brief words put aside the shape of the old woman, and revealed herself Minerva, goddess. All the other nymphs and matrons of Mygdonia worshipped her, but not Arachne, who defiant stood, although at first she flushed up, then went pale, then blushed again, reluctant. So at first the sky suffuses, as Aurora moves, and quickly when the glorious sun comes up, pales into white. She even rushed upon her own destruction, for she would not give from her desire to gain the victory. 
nor did the daughter of Almighty Jove decline, disdaining to delay with words, she hesitated not. And both at once selected their positions, stretched their webs with finest warp, and separated warp with sleigh. The woof was next inserted in the web by means of the sharp shuttles, which their nimble fingers pushed along, so drawn within the warp, and so the teeth notched in the moving sleigh might strike them. Both in haste girded their garments to their breasts, and moved their skilful arms, beguiling their fatigue in eager action. Myriad tints appeared besides the Tyrian purple, royal dye extracted in brass vessels. As the bow that spans new glory in the curving sky, its glittering rays reflected in the rain, spreads out a multitude of blended tints, in scintillating beauty to the sight of all who gaze upon it, so the threads, inwoven, mingled in a thousand tints, harmonious and contrasting, shot with gold, and there depicted in those shining webs were shown the histories of ancient days. Minerva worked the Athenian hill of Mars, where ancient Cecrops built his citadel, and showed the old contention for the name it should be given. Twelve celestial gods surrounded Jupiter on lofty thrones, and all their features were so nicely drawn, that each could be distinguished. Jupiter appeared as monarch of those judging gods. There Neptune, guardian of the sea, was shown contending with Minerva. As he struck the rock with his long trident, a wild horse sprang forth which he bequeathed to man. He claimed his right to name the city for that gift. And then she wove a portrait of herself, bearing a shield, and in her hand a lance, sharp-pointed, and a helmet on her head, her breast well guarded by her aegis. There she struck her spear into the fertile earth, from which a branch of olive seemed to sprout, pale with new-clustered fruits. And those twelve gods appeared to judge, that olive as a gift surpassed the horse which Neptune gave to man. And, so Arachne, rival of her fame, might learn the folly of her mad attempt, from the great deeds of ancient histories, and what award presumption must expect, Minerva wove four corners with life-scenes of contest, brightly coloured, but of size diminutive. In one of these was shown the snow-clad mountains, Rhodope, and Hemus, which for punishment were changed from human beings to those rigid forms, when they aspired to rival the high gods. And in another corner she described that pygmy, whom the angry Juno changed from queenship to crane, because she thought herself an equal of the living gods, she was commanded to wage cruel wars upon her former subjects. In the third, she wove the story of Antigone, who dared compare herself to Juno, queen of Jupiter, and showed her as she was transformed into a silly, chattering stork, that praised her beauty with her ugly beak. Despite the powers of Ilion and her sire Laedemon, her shoulders fledged white wings. And so the third part finished, there was left one corner, where Minerva deftly worked the story of the father, Cinerus, as he was weeping on the temple steps, which once had been his daughter's living limbs. And she adorned the border with designs of peaceful olive, her devoted tree, which having shown, she made an end of work. Arachne, of Maeonia, wove at first the story of Europa, as the bull deceived her, and so perfect was her art, it seemed a real bull, in real waves. Europa seemed to look back towards the land which she had left, and call in her alarm to her companions, and as if she feared the touch of dashing waters, to draw up her timid feet, while she was sitting on the bull's back. 
and she wove Asteria seized by the assaulting eagle, and beneath the swan's white wings showed Leda lying by the stream, and showed Jove dancing as a satyr, when he sought the beautiful Antiope, to whom was given twins, and how he seemed Amphitryon when he deceived Alcmena, and how he courted lovely Danae luring her as a gleaming shower of gold, and poor Aegina, hidden in his flame, Jove as a shepherd with Nemesine, and beautiful Proserpina, involved by him apparent as a spotted snake. And in her web, Arachne wove the scenes of Neptune, who was shown first as a bull, when he was deep in love with virgin Arne, then as Enipeus, when the giant twins Eloidae were begot, and as the ram that gambled with Basaltus, as a horse loved by the fruitful Ceres, golden-haired, all bounteous mother of the yellow grain, and as the bird that hovered round snake-haired Medusa, mother of the winged horse, and as the dolphin, sporting with the nymph Melantho. All of these were woven true to life in proper shades. And there she showed Apollo, when disguised in various forms, as when he seemed a rustic, and as when he wore hawk-wings, and then the tawny skin of a great lion, and once more when he deluded Icy as a shepherd-lad. And there was Bacchus, when he was disguised as a large cluster of fictitious grapes, deluding by that while the beautiful Erigone, and Saturn as a steed, begetter of the dual-natured Chiron. And then Arachne, to complete her work, wove all around the web a pattern edge of interlacing flowers and ivy-leaves. Minerva could not find a fleck or a flaw. Even envy cannot censure perfect art. Enraged because Arachne had such skill, she ripped the web, and ruined all the scenes that showed those wicked actions of the gods, and with her boxwood shuttle in her hand struck the unhappy mortal on her head, struck sharply thrice, and even once again. Arachne's spirit, deigning not to brook such insult, brooded on it, till she tied a cord around her neck and hung herself. Minerva, moved to pity at the sight, sustained and saved her from that bitter death, but angry still pronounced another doom. Although I grant you life, most wicked one, your fate shall be to dangle on a cord, and your posterity for ever shall take your example, that your punishment may last for ever. Even as she spoke, before withdrawing from her victim's sight, she sprinkled her with juice, extract of herbs of Hecate. At once all hair fell off, her nose and ears remained not, and her head shrunk rapidly in size as well as all her body, leaving her diminutive. Her slender fingers gathered to her sides as long thin legs, and all her other parts were fast absorbed in her abdomen, whence she vented a fine thread. And ever since, Arachne, as a spider, weaves her web. All Lydia was astonished at her fate. The rumour spread to Phrygia. Soon the world was filled with fear and wonder. Niobe had known her long before, when in Maeonia near to Mount Sipolis. But the sad fate which overtook Arachne, lost on her, never ceased her boasting and refused to honour the great gods. So many things increased her pride. She loved to boast her husband's skill, their noble family, the rising grandeur of their kingdom. Such felicities were great delights to her, but nothing could exceed the haughty way she boasted of her children. And in truth Niobe might have been adjudged on earth the happiest mother of mankind, if pride had not destroyed her wit. It happened then that Manto, daughter of Tiresias, who told the future, when she felt the fire of prophecy descend upon her, rushed upon the street and shouted in the midst, "'You women of Ismenius!' Go and give to high Latona and her children twain incense and prayer. Go!
Go, and with laurel wreathe your hair in garlands, as your sacred prayers arise to heaven. Give heed, for by my speech Latona has ordained these holy rites." At once the Theban women wreathe their brows with laurel, and they cast in hallowed flame the grateful incense, while they supplicate all favours of the ever-living gods. And while they worship, Niobe comes there, surrounded with the troop that follow her, and most conspicuous in her purple robe, bright with inwoven threads of yellow gold. Beautiful in her anger, she tosses back her graceful head. The glory of her hair shines on her shoulders. Standing forth, she looks upon them with her haughty eyes, and taunts them. Madness has prevailed on you to worship some imagined gods of heaven, which you have only heard of. But the gods that truly are on earth, and can be seen, are all neglected. Come, explain to me, why is Latona worshipped and adored, and frankincense not offered unto me? For my divinity is known to you. Tantalus was my father, who alone approached the tables of the gods in heaven. My mother, sister of the Pleiades, was daughter of huge Atlas, who supports the world upon his shoulders. I can boast of Jupiter as father of my sire. I count him also as my father-in-law. The peoples of my Phrygia dread my power, and I am mistress of the palace built by Cadmus. By my husband I am queen of those great walls that reared themselves to the sweet music of his sounding lyre. We rule together all the people they encompass and defend. And everywhere my gaze is turned, and evidence of wealth is witnessed. In my features you can see the beauty of a goddess, but above that majesty is all the glory due to me, the mother of my seven sons and daughters seven. And the time will come when by their marriage they will magnify the circle of my power invincible. All must acknowledge my just cause of pride, and must no longer worship, in despite of my superior birth, this deity, a daughter of ignoble Coeus, whom one time the great earth would not even grant sufficient space for travail, whom the heavens, the land, the sea, together once compelled to wander, hopeless on all hostile shores. Throughout the world she found herself rebuffed, till Delos, sorry for the vagrant, said, Homeless, you roam the lands, and I the seas and even her refuge always was adrift. And there she bore two children, who compared with mine are but as one to seven. Who denies my fortunate condition? Who can doubt my future? I am surely safe. The wealth of my abundance is too strong for fortune to assail me. Let her rage despoil me of large substance, yet so much would still be mine, for I have risen above the blight of apprehension. But suppose a few of my fair children should be taken. Even so deprived, I could not be reduced to only two, as this Latona, who might quite as well be childless. Get you gone from this insensate sacrifice. Make haste. Cast off the wreathing laurels from your brows." They plucked the garlands from their hair, and left the sacrifice. Obedient to her will, although in gentle murmurs they adored the goddess Niobe had so defamed. Latona, furious when she heard the speech, flew swiftly to the utmost peak of Synthus, and spoke to her two children in these words. Behold your mother, proud of having borne such glorious children! I will yield prestige before no goddess, save alone immortal Juno. I have been debased, and driven for all ages from my own, my altars unto me devoted long, and so must languish through eternity, unless by you sustained. Nor is this all. That daughter of Tantalus, bold Niobe, has added curses to her evil deeds, and with a tongue as wicked as her sire's has raised her base-born children over mine, has even called me childless. A sad fate more surely should be hers. Oh, I entreat! But Phoebus answered her, No more complaint is necessary. 
for it only serves to hinder the swift sequel of her doom. And with the same words Phoebe answered her, and having spoken, they descended through the shielding shadows of surrounding clouds, and hovered on the citadel of Cadmus. There, far below them, was a level plain which swept round those walls, where trampling steeds with horny hoofs and multitudinous wheels had beaten a wide track, and on the field the older sons of Niobe on steeds emblazoned with bright dyes and harness rich with studded gold were circling. One of these, Ismenus, first born of his mother, while controlling his fleet courser's foaming mouth, cried out, Ah, wretched me! A shaft had pierced the middle of his breast, and as the reins dropped slowly on the rapid courser's neck, his drooping form fell forward to the ground. Not far from him, his brother, Sipolus, could hear the whistling of a fatal shaft, and in his fright urged on the plunging steed, as when the watchful pilot, sensible of storms approaching, crowds on sail, hoping to catch a momentary breeze, so fled he, urging an impetuous flight. But while he fled, the shaft unerring flew, transfixed him with its quivering death, struck where the neck supports the head and the sharp point protruded from his throat. In his swift flight, as he was leaning forward, he was struck, and rolling over the wild horse's neck, pitched to the ground, and stained it with his blood. Unhappy Phaedimus, and Tantalus, so named from his maternal grandsire, now had finished coursing on the track, and smooth. Shining with oil were wrestling in the field, and while these brothers struggled breast to breast, another arrow hurtling from the sky pierced them together just as they were clinched. The mingled sound that issued from two throats was like a single groan. Convulsed with pain the wrestlers fell together on the ground, where stricken with a double agony, rolling their eyeballs, they sobbed out their lives. Alphenor saw them die beating his breast in agony, ran to lift in his arms their lifeless bodies cold. While doing this he fell upon them. Phoebus struck him so, piercing his midriff in a vital part, with fatal shot, which when he pulled it forth dragged with its barb a torn clot of his lung. His blood and life poured out upon the air. The youthful Damasion was next struck, not only once. An arrow pierced his leg just where the sinews of the thigh began, and as he turned and stooped to pluck it out, another keen shaft shot into his neck, up to the fletching. The blood drove it out, and spouted after it in crimson jets. Then Ilioneus, last of seven sons, lifted his unavailing arms in prayer, and cried, O universal deities, gods of eternal heaven, spare my life! Besought too late, Apollo of the bow could not prevail against the deadly shaft already on its way, and yet his will, compellent, acted to retard its flight, so that it cut no deeper than his heart. The rumours of an awful tragedy, the wailings of sad Niobe's loved friends, the terror of her grieving relatives, all gave her some knowledge of her sudden loss, but so bewildered and enraged her mind, that she could hardly realise the gods had privilege to dare against her might nor would she, till her lord Amphion thrust his sword deep in his breast, by which his life and anguish both were ended in dark night. Alas! proud Niobe, once haughty queen! Proud Niobe, who but so lately drove her people from Latona's altars, while moving majestic through the midst, she hears their plaudits, now so bitterly debased, her meanest enemy may pity her. She fell upon the bodies of her sons, and in a frenzy of maternal grief kissed their unfeeling lips. Then unto heaven with arms accusing, railed upon her foe. Glut your revenge, Latona, glut your rage. Yea, let my lamentations be your joy. Go, satiate your flinty heart with death. 
Are not my seven sons all dead? Am I not waiting to be carried to my grave? Exult and triumph, my victorious foe! Victorious! Nay! Much more remains to me in all my uttermost sorrow, than to you, you gloater upon vengeance. Undismayed I stand victorious in my field of woe." No sooner had she spoken, than the cord twanged from the ever-ready bow, and all who heard the fatal sound again were filled with fear, save Niobe in misery bold, defiant in misfortune. Clothed in black, the sisters of the stricken brothers stood with hair dishevelled by the funeral biers and one, while plucking from her brother's heart a shaft, swooned unto death, fell on her face, on her dear brother's corpse. Another girl, while she consoled her mother, suddenly was stricken with an unseen deadly wound, and doubled in convulsions closed her eyes, tight held them, till both breath and life were lost. Another vainly rushed away from death, she met it, and pitched head first to the ground, and still another died upon her course another vainly sought a secret death, and then another slipped beyond life's edge. So altogether six of seven died, each victim stricken in a different way. One child remained. Then, in a frenzy, fear, the mother, as she covered her with all her garments and her body, wailed, "'Oh, leave me this one child, the youngest of them all! My darling daughter, only leave me one!' But even while she was entreating for its life, the life was taken from her only child. Childless, she crouched beside her slaughtered sons, her lifeless daughters, and her husband's corpse. The breeze not even moved her fallen hair, a chill of marble spread upon her flesh, beneath her pale, set brows, her eyes moved not, her bitter tongue turned stiff in her hard jaws, her lovely veins congealed, and her stiff neck and rigid hands could neither bend nor move. Her limbs and body, all were changed to stone. Yet ever would she weep and as her tears were falling she was carried from the place, enveloped in a storm and mighty wind, far to her native land, where fixed upon a mountain summit she dissolves in tears, and to this day the marble drips with tears. End of Book Six, Part One